0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about the complex personal themes behind stories from home by choreographer Yvonne Montoya. How the nonprofit Iskashita Network is helping refugees and making healthy food available in our community. Ari, a young man who immigrated from the Republic of the Congo seven years ago, reads an essay about peace. Plus, stories that soar returns and a fifth grader named Felicity shares wisdom about creating your own peaceful place. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Yvonne Montoya is the founding director of Safos Dance Theater. Next week will be the debut public performance of Stories from Home, a group of dances that Montoya created to tell some very complex stories about her family and her home state of New Mexico.
1: Yeah, the catalyst for Stories from Home was My father's passing in 2015, my dad was a storyteller, very well-versed in the northern New Mexican art of storytelling and oral tradition. And when he passed, I was very sad for my son, who was seven at the time, because I didn't know how these stories were going to be shared with him without my dad carrying that tradition. Um, So I decided to continue my dad's storytelling tradition using dance and it was during a residency at Space on Ryder Farm that I started the first piece, uh, Four Stories from Home, way back in 2017. And we developed the work. It was originally meant to premiere in September 2020. And then the pandemic happened. So we were on a three-year hiatus and we are getting ready to premiere February 8th in CPAC in Green Valley.
0: Yvonne, when I was reading some of the material connected to stories from home, I ran across a term I hadn't heard before, and it was Nuevo Mexicana.
1: Yes, I am a 23rd generation Nuevo Mexicana, so I'm someone from New Mexico with um, deep, deep roots in the region. Uh, My family was there before this was the United States, before it was Mexico. There's been different terms used for us to describe ourselves in the past, but the current one that leading scholars of, of my generation that are Nuevo Mexicanos are using is that term.
0: So stories from home is not just your own familial home. It's the region that you call home. Your perspective on this is larger than just your personal story. You're actually talking about the Southwest and New Mexico as a character.
1: Yes. I think for me, the histories, the stories, The aesthetics of the Southwest region aren't really seen in concert dance spaces and also in a lot of spaces outside of the Southwest. And so I really wanted to bring these stories to life, embody these stories, and share them uh, in different ways. So yes, we can read about these histories in books, um, but we can also experience them through live performance as well. One of the catalysts for creating this work was a question that I had is, what are the contemporary movement aesthetics of the u.s Southwest and for me specifically as a nuevo mexicana of of northern New Mexico of where I'm from uh, because I trained in these dance forms that came from the coast of the United States but that's not how people were moving and dancing in northern New Mexico uh, for many centuries so how would we contemporize that where would I be in that trajectory had I not, St- my you know, family and lineage and heritage, not stop those dance practices and turn towards these modern contemporary dance practices. So I feel like I do that exploration and stories from home. There are a couple of dances where I'm incorporating um, the vocabulary of the folk forms from northern New Mexico, which a lot of those dances are only danced by elders now. So there's been a revival. There's some groups of people that are trying to keep those dances alive, but those are also falling by the wayside. And that's in a very interesting heritage because um, there's movement vocabularies and dances that came through from the Santa Fe Trail, but also from Latin America because of New Mexico's history um, and everything that's happened uh, over time. There's been a lot of, of sprinkling of different forms in there. Um, so I do incorporate that into some of my dances, but I feel like I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg and I definitely want to continue exploring ways in which our traditions can inform our contemporary practices.
0: I have to do a lot of writing, so I understand the idea of composition with words. I've played music, so I know what it is to sit down and find a rhythm and find a tone that is pleasing. But I don't really understand how one begins to compose a story through dance. Tell me something about your process.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start with one of the dances. Um, The first one I choreographed a story from home, um, Bracero, is about my dad's time working with the Bracero program, picking cantaloupe and watermelon in Yuma and in places in Southern California. I did an oral history with him before he passed. And so the entirety of the dance is based on his gestures and the way his arms and we were moving as he was remembering and telling me the story. Um, He was doing the motions of breaking the watermelon and cantaloupe off the vine. He was doing the motions of tossing them onto the conveyor belt without even thinking of it. I saw how the stories lived in his body because that was another question that drove the creation of this piece is where do stories live in our body? Where does ancestral memory live in our body? And so that was very clear to me when I was speaking with him and I was lucky that it wasn't just a recorded voice oral history, I used film um, to see that that's where those memories lived in his body. And then to take that out, abstract it, put it in the larger body, and then set it on dancers through movement, that that was the, the inspiration for that. So that's how I found the story and where it lives within inside of us.
0: I find that really, really interesting. But then I think about things like you cite in New Mexican history, the impact that having the atomic bomb project happen in that state and the lingering legacy of that, a very toxic legacy. How in the world can you convert that into your body and movement?
1: So we're speaking about the dance Pajarito. Um, My third maternal great-grandparents were evicted from their homestead on the Pajarito Plateau in 1943 so the government could create the atomic bomb. Oppenheimer and Groves chose Los Alamos because of the population of people that didn't speak English. Uh, My ancestors at that time, even though it was the United States, New Mexico was a state, the state constitution was done in, um, it's bilingually, so schools were still being run in Spanish, and there was a large tewa and Spanish-speaking populations in the area. So it was strategically chosen because they knew they could tap in to the labor force. And then, of course, if my great-great-grandparents were displaced from their home, they didn't have... Jobs, so they had to go work there. Three generations of my family worked at the lab after that, uh, ending with my father, who died in 2015 because of ex- his exposure to toxic radioactive nuclear chemicals and materials. The government paid for his terminal cancer treatment um, through the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program Act. He was considered a Cold War patriot, but I trace that journey through the generations and how that project impacted the land, the water, the people, and my family. That one was tricky because I'm going back in time and telling a story of ancestors that aren't here. So I can't speak with them to ask what it was like. Uh, I had to do a lot of exploration in my own body. Where do these ancestral memories live in me? Do I have vestiges of? Any of that experience. I did research trips up to Los Alamos. I have a a dear cousin, um, Dr. Mariah Gomez, who is a leading researcher on this at the University of New Mexico. I spoke with her. We talked about um, the homesteading work that my ancestors did, where the cancers appeared in the body, uh, because it wasn't just my dad that passed away, but the generation prior. A lot of my great aunts and great uncles also died of stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer. My grandfather has cancer. So there's a lot of illness that came as a result of it that no one really speaks about. That's a little bit more palpable. There's more energy with that. There was more, more anger um, to tap into in terms of that.
0: What is something that you hope an audience member will take away from seeing stories from home?
1: I hope that they leave with a better understanding of some of the stories of the Southwest. I by no means speak for everyone. I'm sharing my family's stories. This is one of many in a cacophony of voices. Uh, two, I hope that they leave thinking about their own stories from home. What's their home? What's their legacy? Where are they from? What's their connection to land and place? What's their cadencia? My
0: guest was choreographer Yvonne Montoya, the founding director of Sappho's Dance Theater. The first production of Stories from Home is happening Wednesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. at CPAC, the Community and Performance Arts Center in Green Valley. There's a link for tickets on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. If you have fruit trees growing around your home or property, the Iskashita Refugee Network might be able to help you out. They can harvest the excess fruit, use it to make delicious jams and preserves, and reduce the amount of food waste in our community. They are also helping global refugees build new lives in the United States. Recently, the Iskashita Network was able to move into new offices and is currently hosting a special group of volunteers. We'll meet some of them next as Tony Paniagua begins a conversation with the founder and executive director of Iskashita, Dr. Barbara Eisworth.
2: During COVID, uh, the demand for our food escalated uh, with families struggling, and we added a lot of new participants to receiving our food, including um, Apache communities, Pascua Yaqui, Tohono O'odham but it also um, hindered us because of lack of, of volunteers. And we were just mounting a new strategy because we figured we couldn't harvest any harder or longer the way we were doing it. So now we have an online forum that we um, helps us plan out the harvest well in advance, but still last year, the citrus season just about killed our our staff and our wonderful volunteers harvesting. So we applied with the AmeriCorps program for the National Civilian Community Corps. I always want to say Conservation Corps because sustainability and conservation is very important to Ishkoshita, but so is community. So we um, applied for a, a grant through AmeriCorps for a traveling team to spend six weeks with us and we have nine americorps members from nine different states none of which had harvested any citrus before and now they have ooh, probably 10 15 varieties of citrus that they are familiar with and are picking a good 16 hours a week for us
3: thank you we have two of the national civilian community corps participants we'll begin with diana chukajian Diana, where are you from and what have you thought so far about this experience?
4: So I'm from Pennsylvania. The experience of just being in Arizona alone is really cool because it's a completely different experience from Pennsylvania. Just as Barbara said, none of us have ever harvested citrus. This is our second project together as a team. We're very excited to be helping and meeting a new community of people, as well as learning some new skills that we never thought we'd be doing.
3: And how old are you and what do you hope to do next with your life?
4: I'm 18, so I just graduated high school. Um, I wanted to do this before I went on further with my education. So this is giving me a better perspective of what I want to go to school for and kind of like zeroing in in on that. So I'll probably go back to Pennsylvania and I want to go into something nonprofit for sure.
3: The other group member is Lauren Isaac. What is your history with this group?
5: I'm from Oregon. I started in AmeriCorps NCCC last year, actually. I was a core member and then loved it so much that I stayed on to be a team leader this year. It's been really cool. This is my first project here in Arizona, and I just really enjoy getting to work with the harvesting, um, working with food insecurity, because this was something totally different and new that Barbara definitely gave us a wonderful opportunity to join.
3: Lauren, many people are probably not familiar with the National Civilian Community Corps. Can you give us more information about how it works?
5: NCCC is a federal service program for young adults ages 18 to 26 currently. And it's awesome because we really get to travel around the country um, with a team. Ours is nine people this year, so pretty solid group. Um, and you get to work on all sorts of different projects. You have construction, disaster relief, helping promote food security, pretty much anything and any th- everything that you can think of with nonprofits. So it really touches on a lot of people's lives.
3: Diana, this region is very different from Pennsylvania. What have been some of your favorite experiences during your stay here in the desert of Southern Arizona? <laughs>
4: um. I think the coolest thing about serving on a team is that because all nine of us are from different states, like we're all learning from each other just by living with each other. I come from like a really small town, so seeing how I share things in common with people who have lived across the country and I've never met before, how we differ and kind of growing from those experiences, as well as being able to try new things. I never thought that I'd be able to drive a 15-passenger van or like build a wall or I never thought that I'd be picking grapefruits the size of my head. (laughs) (laughs) So this has just been really cool to be able to travel and have new experiences and meet new people, meet the refugees. It's been really cool to kind of immerse myself in a completely different community.
3: Lauren, you live in Oregon, and that's where you're from. How does this part of the country compare?
4: It's definitely really nice.
5: I'm used to a lot of rain, (laughs) but it is nice to have sunshine pretty much every single day.
3: Dr. Eisworth, the founder of Iskashita Refugee Network. You obviously appreciate the help from Lauren and Diana and the rest of the team from National Civilian Community Corps. You say their work is vital, but it's not just about fun and exercise outdoors.
2: So those are all wonderful um, attributes of the volunteer work that we have, but it's really important. We live in a desert and Uh, We've invested all these water, land, um, nutrient resources into our backyard bounty, and for that to go to waste. It's understandable why a family can't use uh, 1,300 pounds of grapefruit every year or 2,368 lemons from one lemon tree in one year, Um, but it's also um, a great opportunity to meet the needs of the food insecure one in four people in pima county suffer from food insecurity we take the fruit we zest it we juice it um, we dehydrate we just come up with all kinds of creations and this important opportunity for us to capture um, more efficiently and capture more fruit than we have in the past
3: Local assistance and participation is pivotal because many people have these citrus trees that are packed with fruit this time of year. What would you like to say to the community at large about this topic?
2: One tree is is enough. <laughs> um, people say, oh, I only have one grapefruit tree. That's plenty. We'll be recruiting harvesting volunteers again, on February 20th, the minute these, these folks leave, um, because we will continue harvesting citrus until April, May, sometimes June, I think last year we did a citrus harvest in July, but we harvest all year round. We're forever being able to find new new places for the food to be donated. So we can't do it without the community. We can't do it without volunteers.
3: Dr. Barbara Eisworth, founder and executive director of Iskashita Refugee Network, Lauren Isaac from Oregon, and Diana Chukagian from Pennsylvania. Thank you all for joining us and good luck. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: If you'd like to help or donate
0: to the Eskashita Network, or if you have fruit for them to harvest, there's a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The mission statement of the group called Owl and Panther is to inspire and support refugees and society in embracing change, life, and hope through the expressive arts. Owl and Panther provides a safe space for refugees of all ages, particularly those who have escaped violence and persecution. There, they use art to build bridges of communication. And I'd like to welcome Eri, a member of
6: Owl and Panther, to read an essay. Hello, my name is Eri Tsebashi. I was born in a infamous country in central Africa, Congo, but I was raised in Uganda and moved in here to the United States. I studied at Pima Community College and majoring in psychology. Peace has always been a huge part of my life. I did this essay as part of my own time in Owen Panther and hoping to give the audiences a chance to understand what peace means to me personally. From a very young age, I learned that it is essential to think about what peace means Not only was it important for me to think about what peace meant on a more personal level, but what it meant on a global scale. Because of the differences in experience for each person, with all the time I have spent contemplating about what peace means, I have determined that peace is equality and is achievable through people striving to be accepting, humble, empathetic, and honest. As a someone who learned English as a second language, I have a non-American accent. It's an aspect of how I speak that some people who have interacted with find difficulty to deal with. An example of this is how, in general, I am now called upon or asked to participate in college classes. I have noticed that students who speak English with an American accent are called up more frequently than me during class discussions and activities. I'm not alone. I have noticed that other students who are also foreigners experience this as well. This challenges me to find a sense of peace in these classrooms when I feel like I'm not being given a fair opportunity to speak. However, if my professor was more accepting of students who had different accents and ways of speaking, it will not only help me, but other students in my position as well, feel like we are equally represented in the class. So, acceptancy is more important in achieving peace because it allows for everyone to come together as one. When I was in high school, I read a quote from Chinese philosopher Confucius that said that it does no matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop. In my own life, I found that all people are unique and distinguished from one another. This means that one person may be quicker at finishing something than another or that they may possess certain skills that others may not. However, this does not impact the end result of one's effort necessarily. Because despite different paces of completion, people can still succeed no matter how long it takes them. This is truly what humbleness means. The ability to keep your ego from judging others too harshly about where they are in their life. Without humility, a person can easily think that someone else is unequal. An idea that will not only disrupt a sense of shared peace, but also peace on an internal level. Talking to people and treating them as you want to be treated is very important because whether you agree with me or not, what you do can really affect many people's lives, whether it's positively or negatively. For example, I had a friend back in Africa and he and I took care of our family's sheep together. He lost his mother at the age of nine and since there was no child protective service in my village, he had to live with his auntie but he always complained about his aunt abusing him and felt like he was treated like a slave. Sadly, one day he disappeared and to this day he's never been found. With all honesty, I think we show value to ourselves when we treat others with kindness. Even though some people may want to be treated differently than we do, we should always try to treat everybody with kindness, which results in everyone being given equal treatment. This in turn makes everyone strive to be more empathetic and helps facilitate a more peaceful environment. Debatably, honesty is the most important building block in creating equality. No matter who it is, we all will prefer getting told something with honesty, as opposed to being lied to. During my childhood, I participated in local football games where kids from my village would compete with kids from other surrounding villages sometimes though the kids from other villages will not have their own ball to play with this led them to make deals with kids from my village in which they will trade something in exchange for one of our balls however when the kids from my village went to make the trade the kids from the other village would just fight them and steal the ball had the kids from the other villages simply asked to borrow or honestly trade for one of our balls we would have gladly shared with them This has made me conclude that without honesty, the truth is not given or received equally and therefore, it's much more difficult to achieve peace. Over the course of writing this essay, I have defended the idea I've developed throughout my life that peace and equality are essentially one and the same. Equality in this sense is dependent upon people attempting to demonstrate acceptance, humbleness, empathy, and honesty. These virtues that I've come up with mostly through my own observations are similar if not almost identical to the Rotary Club's four-way test to support peace. The tests for questions about truthfulness, fairness, goodwill building, and being widely beneficial to all are equivalent to my thoughts about honesty, acceptancy, empathy, and harmonious, respectively. Peace as is defined here is something everyone needs to always keep in mind because this is the way we can achieve true freedom which will give people an ability to do what gives them personal peace while maintaining peace for all.
0: Thank you, Ari, from the Tucson chapter of Owl and Panther. You can find more information at (music) owlandpanther.org. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. They help young writers realize the power and potential of bringing their stories to life for the stage, video, or radio. We're now presenting these stories on the first Thursday of every month here on Spotlight. Next, we'll hear some wisdom shared by Felicity, a fifth grader at Drexel Elementary in The Peaceful Place. It's narrated by Angela, a middle schooler from Literacy Connect's Youth Center program.
7: A peaceful place. If you have ever wished that you could just get away from all of the trouble around you and be in a peaceful place, there is only one way to do so. If you want to be in a peaceful place, just help other people be in theirs. Because if you help everyone get to their peaceful place, there will be no trouble around you. And if you ask, how can I help everyone? Well, you don't. You only help the ones that are willing to be helped. Some people just don't want to be helped, but that's okay. Some people will just help themselves. Just try to be a friend and encourage them. Always be kind to someone in need.
0: That was The Peaceful Place, written by Felicity, a fifth grader at Drexel Elementary in the Sunnyside School District. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar, Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories to the Magic Box Story Portal now at literacyconnects.org. And listen for more stories that soar every month on Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. Music by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.